Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss pharmaceutical marketing, or more candidly, marketing practice abuses. With me to discuss the topic is Dr. Adrian Few Berman. Welcome, Adrian. Well, thank you, David. Before we begin, as always, let me offer some background. Cases of fraud under the False Claims Act committed by the pharmaceutical industry have grown substantially over the past 20 years. Per a KPMG study, for example, cases have grown from 10 in 1991 to over 3,000 in 2010. And in fact, over the past decade, the pharmaceutical industry surpassed the defense industry in the number of violations under the FCA, again, the Federal Claims Act. The types of violations include overcharging government health programs, i.e. Medicare and Medicaid, kickbacks, concealing study findings, unlawful promotion or marketing, particularly off-label promotion and illegal distribution. Among the top 10 settlements between 09 and 11, all of these were over $100 million, four were for drug safety issues, and five were for off-label promotion. Likely the most notorious drug safety case amongst these involved, of course, Merck's painkiller Vioxx, which in 2010 was fined $4.8 billion. And among the off-label abuses, Pfizer's Bextra was fined $2.3 billion in 2009. And I'll mention as well Allergan's Botox product, uh, which was marketed uh, for headache pain and cerebral palsy, and they were fined in 2010 $660 million. Dr. Uh, Few Berman's bio is found on the website, so I'll not uh, restate it here. So with that, uh, let me begin. I just mentioned uh, a range of violations, um, but Dr. Few Berman, can you unpack for me better uh, these marketing practices or abuses? Well, so I direct a project called Farmed Out that does research and education on pharmaceutical and medical device marketing and how it affects therapeutic choices that physicians make and, of course, the therapies that patients use. And um, there really have been a lot of fines in recent years, um, often for off-label promotion or promotion of drugs for conditions that the FDA has not approved them for. And as you noted, in some cases, it's, it has been because companies have uh, covered up um, adverse effects. So um, there, there have been many fines, but really um, the, the violations that have been unearthed may be the tip of the iceberg, um, that off-label promotion is common among companies. There have been many large companies um, that have have engaged in this, and even when a company is not promoting a drug illegally, it still may be promoting drugs that are not the best choice for specific patients. So often the best choice of a drug is an older drug or a more inexpensive drug or a drug that isn't being um, promoted. Or a generic. A or a generic drug, right. So by defi- because Um, a drug has to have been on the market a certain period of time before becoming generic, we know more about generic drugs simply because we have more experience with them. Um, uh, They've always been out for seven or ten years by the time um, a company is able to 
uh, to, uh, to get a generic approved. So we have more experience with that. We learn a lot about a drug after it's on the market. Uh, so even if adverse events were reported correctly in trials before a, a drug comes on the market, we still learn more about it once it's out there, it's being used in elders, it might be used in children, it might be used in someone using different drugs or someone with different medical conditions, and so the effects might be different. So it's always good to wait a few years on a new drug unless it's the only drug out there for a specific condition. Interesting. So just to be clear, the FDA approves um, a drug for certain uh, conditions, such that F, such that the pharmaceutical can, can market it for those conditions. But correct me, uh, the physician can prescribe a drug for any use. Correct? Yes. So, so a drug is approved for a specific use or uses by the FDA. So the FDA has determined that the benefits outweigh the risks for a specific use. But a physician or another prescriber um, can prescribe a drug for anything that they want. So if a physician thinks that chemotherapy is good for a cold, they can they can prescribe it for a cold and that's not against the law. Okay. Uh, let me pick up on on the on the word you used or the phrase tip of the iceberg. What I mean what makes you say that? I mean how prevalent or more prevalent is this for example this off-label practice? Well, it's hard to say, but um, it's it is it is common uh, among companies and um, even on-label promotion uh, can also be uh, can al can also be be questionable in, in in terms of its ethics. It's been said that the the drugs that are the least effective are the ones that are most marketed, which actually can make sense. That which actually makes sense that if a if a drug is uh, the cure for a condition, you don't need to market that drug. You need to market the drug that is the tenth. Uh, treatment of its kind with no particular advantage over the first nine treatments, that's the one that's really going to need promotion in order to make money. So off-label marketing is a problem, but on-label marketing is a problem as well. As well. Let me ask, um, let, let's get to the health consequences. I, I did mention Vioxx and there are numerous suits associated with whether or not the product, the painkiller product, uh, contributed to heart attacks and strokes. Uh, when I mentioned Bextra, um, the drug is approved for rheumatoid arthritis, however, it was marketed for knee replacement surgery pain, and I also mentioned um, other uses marketed um, for other uses relative to Botox. But, I mean, how much of a public health concern is this? It, it's hard to say, but it's, it's a major public health concern. So um, adverse drug reactions and interactions are uh, one of the top five um, reasons for death in the United States. And certainly there are conditions for which drugs are necessary, but there are drugs that are overused or that shouldn't be used in combination. The, there are 10,000 drugs on the U.S. market, and most physicians um, are only familiar with 100 drugs or maybe possibly 200 drugs, um, and they tend to be the drugs that are most promoted. So that means that there are a lot of drugs out there that may actually be better than the drugs that are being promoted, but that physicians and other prescribers don't necessarily know about or, um, or, or don't know very well. So this is really an issue for anybody who uses drugs, and um, the, there's also issues with medical devices. 
but is the drug that you've been prescribed the best drug for your condition or is it the drug that's been the most marketed to your physician? Okay, so you did mention your organization, uh, Farmed Out. So let me offer the opportunity to tell us more about what, what that organization does. So Farmed Out is a project of the Georgetown University Medical Center in the Department of Pharmacology and Physiology. And we're a group of, of physicians, lawyers, artists, students, um, industry insiders, and others uh, who are doing research and education of healthcare providers about how the pharmaceutical and medical device industry is manipulating their perceptions and their prescribing choices. So um, we've done novel research on marketing messages and continuing medical education and in um, ghostwriting. I am a paid expert witness in litigation regarding pharmaceutical marketing um, practices. That's something it's always good to ask about someone's conflicts of interest. Um, but um, we and we, we publish articles in the peer-reviewed medical literature. We also have a novel conference every year that um, is continuing medical education for physicians, but also brings in consumer advocates and historians and sociologists and is a wonderful interdisciplinary um, conference. So we're a unique organization uh, doing this work, and we survive on individual contributions. Okay, well, you did mention, I did mention in my intro, concealing study findings. But you mentioned ghostwriting, such that the listener, what exactly is ghostwriting? Um, well, many pharmaceutical companies use um, medical writers to generate articles that are meant for the medical literature and also we're finding for consumer magazines as well. Um, and a physician, often an academic physician, is recruited to put their name on that article as the author. So the actual writer of the author is not visible and the perspective is actually a corporate perspective. So there are always marketing messages in these articles. Uh, one of the speakers at our last Farmed Out um, conference, uh, Steve Braun, talked about uh, being a ghostwriter who helped to sell low T syndrome or low testosterone syndrome. And he wrote articles for women's magazines and also continuing medical education. Um, uh, courses um, that had marketing messages in them um, that would that would position the market to accept um, testosterone therapy. So their ghostwriting can happen both um, in consumer literature but also in peer-reviewed medical journals and it's a huge problem because even physicians um, and other prescribers who do not have relationships with industry rely on the peer-reviewed medical literature as being an objective source of information. And if those articles are ghostwritten with commercial messages intercalated into the text, that's a, a, it's a form of advertising that's invisible. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's unethical for, uh, for someone to put their name on an article that they didn't actually write. Thank you. In, in my introduction, and this leads ultimately to, in my introduction I mentioned uh, corporate integrity agreements, and many large pharmaceutical companies are under uh, these agreements, uh, sometimes termed uh, put in the penalty box, and they're there for several years. Could you talk about what exactly goes into an integrity agreement or what are required for pharmaceuticals to meet the agreement, and do you have some understanding of what effectiveness these have? Well, when the the federal government goes after 
a company, they may require a corporate integrity agreement or a CIA, as they're called, um, that that might, for example, force the company to disclose the payments that it's making to physicians or to organizations. This, of course, next year will be required for for um, all, all companies to disclose. Um, uh, it's part of the Affordable Care Act. The Physician Sunshine Payments Act will disclose um, payments to physicians. But at any rate, payments to physicians have been made public um, through corporate integrity agreements, and also sometimes there might be ethics training required for um, for employees and other kinds of sanctions. Now, companies really fear corporate integrity agreements. They do not like being put under them, um, but uh, they also um, may ignore them. So, for example, one of the fines that you mentioned uh, with Pfizer, the reason, one of the reasons that was given for it being so large was for, quote-unquote, recidivism <laughs> that Pfizer had been by violating a corporate integrity agreement at the, the time that the government went after them again. So um, companies do not like these agreements, um, and it's great that... It, 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 it's, a, it's a great tool, uh, but they sometimes violate them anyway. So on balance, do you, th- so on balance, do you think they're effective? Um, corporate integrity agreements are a, are a good tool, um, and the fines um, are a, a, a good tool as well. It's, um, the, the federal government has the capability of actually banning a company's drugs from use in federally funded programs like Medicare and Medicaid, and it's never actually invoked that. Um, but that would be very interesting um, if it did. I think that could be quite effective. Um, and even though the fines are very um, large, they've been easily absorbed by the companies that um, that they've been levied on. So uh, perhaps the fines uh, perhaps the fines need need to be uh, larger in order to make a difference. It's 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 hard to say, but we really need to uh, attack this from a number this problem from a, a number of different um, sides. Um, consumers shouldn't demand the um, the newest drugs that they see on TV, and physicians need to seek out unbiased sources of information, which are accessible through our farmedout.org website. Um, and um, and you, you really can't count on, on companies to, I mean, companies are beholden to their stockholders, and um, physicians and other healthcare providers are, are beholden to their patients. Um, so I think one of the things that's really important for healthcare providers to realize is healthcare providers and industry are not a team. And we should not be treating industry as though they are on the side of healthcare providers and patient care. These are for-profit companies. Um, they need to make money. They are legally mandated to um, represent the best interests of their stockholders. And um, that information about the drugs and therapies that they that they make um, should not be trusted as unbiased information. Okay, so let, let me ask. So we did mention uh, the fines in these settlements, the amount of these fines, CIAs, corporate terror agreements, your point about transparency as it relates to physician uh, payment, uh, payments received uh, from pharmaceuticals. 
what's your level of confidence relative to the persistence of this uh, problem um, as to whether it, it does persist or do you think we'll see possibly fewer uh, settlements over time going forward? Well, there's been a lot of awareness um, that's increased in the medical and consumer communities over the last few years. I think that having uh, payments to physicians disclosed through the Physician Sunshine Payment Act uh, will make a difference. Disclosure has made a difference. Um, and it's also just becoming less acceptable for academic physicians to um, have promotional relationships with pharmaceutical companies. So things are changing somewhat. I mean, con consumers have actually been more aware of some of these problems over time than, um, than the healthcare provider community, but that's really changing, I think, because of our work and the work of other organizations. Um, so that, but, but, I, but in terms of companies' behavior, we don't have information that it's actually gotten better. They've certainly changed they certainly changed some of their, their tactics, um, but they are still heavily involved in the education of physicians and other healthcare providers. And as long as they're involved in education, there will be commercial messages in that education. So at least on the, the upside is at least there's a distancing between the relationship of pharmaceutical companies with physicians. There, do, there does seem to be some distancing going on and we're quite proud of that. Okay. I do have to ask, since you did mention direct-to-consumer advertising, or DTC, what's your perspective on helpful or harmful? Uh, well, it, it's, 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 it's harmful, but it's not as important as, um, it's not actually as important as education of physicians. So um, the U.S. and New Zealand are the only countries that actually allow direct-to-consumer advertising. And by the way, it's not just advertising, there's also direct-to-consumer promotions. There are many websites, some of which may look like they're objective websites, but they're actually being run um, by, by industry. Um, but when it comes right down to it, the physician or other prescriber has the prescription pad. And so if a patient comes in demanding drug A, I, I can still convince you that you really need drug B, and I'm the one who's signing the prescription. So direct-to-consumer promotion is very good at um, at helping um, patients to accept particular drugs, um, but the but within industry, they know that the they they get more bang for their buck, influencing prescribers. Um, so the direct-to-consumer promotion serves an adjunct role or a supportive role um, to the the uh, the uh, um, advertising disguised as education that goes on with healthcare providers. And the research shows, correct me if I'm wrong, that the return on investment of DTC is really not clear or hasn't really been proven. Is that correct? Well, in the advertising world, they say that um, that that half of uh, half of the expenses spent on advertising are wasted. They just don't know what half is. So there certainly are. It's hard to when you've got a multi-dimensional program going on, you can't tell. Tease out. Yeah, what is working, but um, but we do know that um, for every dollar that's spent on promoting um, promoting drugs to a physician, the return on investment is twelve dollars and seventy cents in prescriptions written. Oh, interesting. Let me ask then, and you did mention the work of Farmed Out. But let me ask more specifically: What would you advise a patient? Um, or just your general uh, consumer? 
of health goods? Um, well, don't see a doctor or healthcare provider who sees drug representatives. About 25% of doctors don't see drug reps, and if they're seeing drug reps, the drug reps are influencing their therapeutic choices. If the if it's not working, the drug reps won't come back. <laughs> don't accept free samples. That free samples are always for expensive drugs that are taken on a chronic basis. Um, if you're given a free sample, give it back and say, I'd really like to have a time-tested drug instead. Mm -hmm. So there's some education that can go on with physicians and other um, prescribers, and, and you should learn as much as possible about um, about drugs that you're taking as as well. Um, and, you know, in general, again, we know more about generic drugs. Now, sometimes there's a drug that isn't available in a generic form, and it really is the only drug for a condition, but sometimes new drugs are not really new. They might just be a new formulation, a new dosage, um, a the sixth or tenth drug of a specific category that doesn't have an advantage over an old category. It might be a combination of two generic drugs. You can get a new patent on um, on a combination drug. So a lot of new drugs are really not very new at all. In fact, you can even rename a drug um, if if it if you if a company gets an indication for a drug, they can actually rename the drug, even if it's exactly the same drug. So, for example, um, Prozac and Seraphim are exactly the same drug; they're fluoxetine, but they're, it's the same drug, even in the same dose, but in a different color pill. Um, but there's there may be a generic available for one drug, but not the renamed drug. So it's very, so I, I would say have a high level of suspicion about um, drugs that you're given. There may be more inexpensive alternatives that um, also may be safer. And finally, let me ask you, how has this influenced your practice? I'm not currently seeing patients. Okay. Yeah, so I'm doing research Just and teaching. And education. And let me ask as a follow-up, then how do your, how do your uh, students receive this information? Um, students are very receptive to it, so I teach both graduate and um, medical students, and um, and I, I also teach physicians and other prescribers. and And I would say that that um, that all of these audiences are very receptive to it. Because most doctors and all medical students want to do the right thing by their patients, um, and they just don't realize that they may be being manipulated. But once they they know about that, they'll actually take actions to, um, to mitigate that influence. So it all starts with awareness. Yes. Okay, Dr. Uh, Fugberman, I think we're at our time boundary, so let me thank you very much for your time. Thank you.